There's an online article outlining 12 differences between driving in the U.S. and driving in Europe. And the author of the article observes that roundabouts, which is number six on her list, uh, can create a real challenge and even some anxiety for visiting Americans who are less experienced with these. Now, I know we have some of these in our area, and so you probably don't have the same kind of anxiety that others might have, some of our fellow countrymen who are traveling overseas. But I'm not sure roundabouts in the Pacific Northwest create any more challenge than our local four-way stops. Of course, while living back east, I noticed that in Greenwich, Connecticut, they don't have four-way stops there. Isn't that curious? Uh, sure, they have intersections that appeared to be as much, with signage that was much the same, but in their case, they were four-way goes. There was no stopping. Take your life is at risk. But here in our parts, uh, we have the four-way stop and don't go, right? Which continues to present a real challenge for us local drivers. In fact, there was a 2019 Ask a Trooper a segment for King 5 that had a viewer asking this. Can you please cover four-way stops? I am so tired of waiting forever behind someone who's afraid to go or almost getting hit by someone who decides not to fully stop before going. The trooper begins their answer by saying that Washingtonians are too polite. That's a kind way of putting it. Not really what I say, but that's what she says. But for those who are well-versed on the right-of-way laws, these intersections give rise to some real real frustration. It may sound like a bit of exaggeration here this morning, but how are we to live in a community? How are we to live in a community, let alone be together, when we struggle at these intersections to agree on what is supposed to happen? Who's to go first? Who's going next? And so on. Overstated, yes, but still a good question. And one that in regards to Jesus' followers and Jesus communities in every generation have had to contend with. You're like, what? The automobile has not existed for 2,000 years. How have they had to contend with that? Well, not automobiles and road rules here, but rather in regards to the intersections of our life together. One goes this way, another goes that way. Someone's heading one direction, another's heading another. So what constitutes an appropriate etiquette or rules for moving together and moving forward. What does that look like? That's where today's text finds us. Draws on what seems to be an artifact from an ancient time. I mean, food sacrifice to idols, I don't think many of us would have that issue specifically. But it still carries a very applicable and timely counsel for our present age. But to hear that counsel, we have to hear what that initial issue was back in Paul's day. If you were to talk to a medical doctor, a dentist, or a therapist, and if you want to talk to one this morning, I know there's a couple here that are retired and otherwise that can talk with you, but they might ask you something like this if you're going to go see them to have a diagnosis. They would say, what are we seeing you here today for? Your answer is often called the presenting problem. You're not the presenting problem. The issue you have is the presenting problem. It's the issue that has prompted you to seek professional assistance. And of course, our reading over the last few weeks have seen uh, many presenting problems as we've looked at 1 Corinthians. Chapter 6 tackled slogans uh, that were actually uh, centered around the idea of personal freedom issues. Chapter 7 answered the question they had asked about sexual abstinence and questions related to that. 
while pointing to readers to a far greater arbiter for matters of faith and life. And now here in chapter 8, we might suppose the issue is food sacrificed to idols, as it essentially comes out and says that much in verse 1. In the ancient world, food sacrificed to idols was kind of a big deal. It was everywhere. In Corinth specifically, if you're in that arena, if you were to buy meat in the market, chances are it had been sacrificed to an idol at some point. But even before you got to the market, if you were to go out to eat, the ancient world, many commentators talk about this, the restaurant of the ancient world was probably affixed to the side of a temple where extra meat was served and offered that was meat sacrificed to idol there. Or people would just hold networking meetings, family gatherings, and the like at the temple. And they'd bring the meat with them to have it sacrificed and served as a participation in whatever the cult was that was associated with that particular idol. And so it was all over the place. And we know from uh, history that folks that were particularly uh, focused or pious about their religious convictions, especially Jewish folks who said, I want nothing to do with idolatry, they would simply not eat meat when they lived in some of these foreign settings, or at least certainly not meat that could be purchased locally or publicly. So that would seem, meat sacrificed to idols would seem rather straightforward for us moderns and altogether irrelevant to our modern lives. After all, I get my meat at Costco and Safeway, Fred Meyer, QFC, or some of us here, we hunt it, right? Any hunters here? Who's our hunters? I'm looking at Craig Hort because I know he's a hunter. You hunt your meat, right? I hunt my meat. It's down on aisle five. But that's how we get our meat. So it's a different, it seems irrelevant. But don't be too quick to pass on this issue. Sometimes the presenting problem isn't actually the problem that needs to be addressed. Clinicians might offer that what we're looking at is simply a symptom of the deeper, deeper issue. The issue being addressed here, food sacrifice idols for those ancient Corinthian Jesus followers, is a kind of symptom to a much deeper issue. And we get a sense of what it might be just from the reading the slogans that are included or quoted in our text. Slogans like in verse 1, all of us possess knowledge. Or in verse 4, no idol in the world really exists, or there is no God but one. Or even as we go to verse 8, food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, or no better off if we do. Emphasis on knowledge, yes, we hear that in these slogans. Dismissive tone, we hear that as well. This is the sloganeering we witnessed a couple weeks ago in chapter 6. Slogans that are espoused and used to justify bad behavior. But what can the ancient writer or even the modern Jesus follower do about this kind of thing where we write each other off with just simple flick of the pen, simple slogan? Well, the first thing Paul does is challenge the underlying assumptions being espoused here. These folks are arguing, all of us possess knowledge. But the general takeaway of what they're saying is that all of this is no big deal. As they would claim, real Jesus followers possess an inner knowledge that tells them there's nothing to this idol stuff. So you better get with the program. If you've got a problem with it, there's something wrong with you. You're weak. You're nothing. Maybe you're not even having authentic faith. Maybe it's not real for you. It makes for a high view of knowledge, yes, but a low view of others, especially those who lack the requisite knowledge. And Paul confirms that the sloganeers have it wrong. They have privileged knowledge when priority should have been given to love. 
What love entails will be filled out more fully, of course, in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. But we find it here contrasted with their so-called knowledge, which is not the same as knowing stuff. We don't want to confuse these two. Knowing stuff, there's things where you have to know stuff. That's not what the issue really is going on here. What's going on is there's a power play that's happening here. It's what you know and who knows it. This knowledge, of course, puffs up. We see that in verse 1, i.e. it leads to pride. But Paul invites them to the purpose that love builds up. And, of course, that's construction language. It's the same type of construction language that's used in Matthew 7 when Jesus talks about building a house on rock. Or again, when he's talking to the disciples and Peter in Matthew 16, when he says he's going to build his church on this rock. That's, that's that same construction-type language. It's sure, it's solid, it's secure. And if they weren't convinced, verse 2 offers the obvious. Human knowledge has its limits. What we can know now is incomplete. Hubris might, of course, hide this truth from us. Yet even so, there's a way forward here. Even amidst human pride and hubris, there's a way forward. And Paul identifies that path in verse 3. Though the ancient Jewish writers had espoused it even earlier than what Paul writes here. The way forward is to love God. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Such a path brings knowledge, but not entirely the way that they were imagining it in Corinth. Instead, it brings a better way. They will be known by God. Not defined by what you know, but defined by who knows you. That's quite something. That's quite something. A great number of congregations and Christian organizations over the years have appropriately adopted and championed the phrase, to know Christ and make him known. Have you ever been part of an organization or a church that has held that as their mission statement? Uh, maybe a few here have had that experience. Of course, it's a great purpose statement. It's very accurate. But perhaps our text here might invite another and equally powerful sentiment for our consideration. And I know the session recently approved uh, a, per, a mission statement or vision statement for our congregation. Here's another one for us to consider in our lives personally. To love God and be known by God. What if that was your church's vision statement, your purpose statement? To love God and to be known by God. That would certainly be the one that Paul's writing to the Corinthians. That, of course, houses the purpose, to love God, and holds it and joins it with the promise to be known by God. And it's particularly the kind of community that Paul is inviting these ancients and us moderns to as well. But what does that look like? What does that look like? Like, how does that take shape? Well, I'm reminded here of a particularly difficult and challenging week in the summer of 1995. Anybody have a challenging week in 1995? Okay, there's a couple of hands. What up? Yeah, 1995, man. You don't know. You have no idea. This one was made all the more challenging by the working conditions I was enduring at that time. No, there was no meat being sacrificed to idols. And because I was working at a camp, the meat was questionable in the cafeteria. But conflict had enveloped the camp, so much so that it had spilled over into the cafeteria. And the conflict had centered around our camp competitions, as silly as that sounds. That people were divided into teams, 
and were doing battle for supremacy for the championship of the week. And it had gotten out of hand. It had gotten crazy. In fact, the counselor had gotten fired in the midst of it. That's pretty crazy. That's pretty wild. And there was a need for folks to come together to stop the hostilities. But of course, the predictable skirmishes soon followed when there's that much conflict. There's no sign of relief that day when we gathered to eat our meal. I think if I remember, it was at lunchtime. And so a group of us counselors were asked to come forward and say something. The leadership said, we don't got anything else left to say. You counselors, let's have a couple of you come up here and say and share. We needed perspective in the moment before the roof came off the place. And so I was asked to offer remedial words to this audience, this very angry audience. And I think I was 20 at the time. So I didn't have a great body of work to draw on at that point. Now that I'm 49, I might have less of a body of work to draw upon. But suddenly this came to mind, and I offered this to the group. And it was in song. Come on, people now. Smile on your brother. And then there was a Muppet Show moment. If you're familiar with the Muppet Show, you know there's every once in a while there's an artist on there that's singing, and all of a sudden a whole flock of Muppets start singing with them. And that's what happened. The room erupted in song. Everybody in the room started singing, Everybody get together, try to love one another right now. It was crazy. It was beautiful. Flowers were being handed out. No, that part didn't happen. But the fever broke in that room at that moment. A new humanity came over the room, and it wasn't long before peace and kindness had returned. Love, we know, holds such a mysterious power. Sometimes remembering as much carries with it the capacity to override the entangled mess that we find ourselves in. We know this. We've seen this at times. We've seen glimpses of this in our lives. It's another way of saying love matters. Love matters. Our ancient writer knows as much, and so beginning in verse 4, he outlines what it looks like to smile on your sisters and your brothers. He does so with three things. The first thing is around language. In verse 4, Paul draws attention to two slogans that were in use. He says, no idol in the world really exists, and there is no God but one. On the face of things, we might say that both of these are true. Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 9, for instance, points to the absurdity of ancient idol worship, asking the question, Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Like I said, it's absurd. And indeed, the earlier mentioned Deuteronomy passage would affirm there is but one God. So technically, these slogans are accurate, but they weren't complete by themselves. Realizing this, and because love matters, language, of course, matters. The wood, stone, or whatever material was used certainly isn't anything. Yet in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, we read in reference to the surrounding pagan culture, they sacrificed to demons, not God. That, of course, is hardly nothing, though it may not be what you think. Paul here is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17. Sure, one might stand firm in their position, but what about their sister or brother in Christ? What if they are less certain? Is it nothing for them? Is that activity nothing for them? 
And verse 5, of course, speaks to the sheer volume of these so-called gods, these distractions in life, this idolatry. Does that communicate that it's nothing? That people are not entrapped by this? That it doesn't have a power over them of some sort? Of course, those lines there tell us that they don't tell us the full story. There's something there in all of this. And what about there is no God but one? Yes, Paul invites here a greater specificity in verse 6. God is Father. And when Paul invokes that word Father, he's talking about the Creator. But he's also talking about Exodus and restoration language that would have been tied around the exile and the return. And Jesus is Lord, connecting Jesus again with the Shema, that Deuteronomy passage, but also to the role of wisdom. And we see in Proverbs chapter 8. Both are highly significant. And the implication here is that God is the goal of our lives. And so it's important for us to get specific here. It's not the goal to become God, but rather to be in relationship, worship, service, enfolded in the love of God. That Jesus would be equated with wisdom and in contrast to the Corinthian affection for knowledge means everything that one might hope to gain through possessing wisdom can be gained rather by possessing Christ. That's an observation N.T. Wright makes. Getting these right then is a matter of first things. Getting our language right is a matter of first things here because who God is and what we are up against is important to know. But it isn't the only thing. It's not the only thing when we're talking about the economy of love. And because love matters, understanding also matters. Not from the basis of knowledge. This is not know-how here at this point, but rather through knowing of other people and their situation and doing so through the basis of love. It's understanding what someone else is up against. It's understanding someone else's experience here. Paul, of course, here models this in verse 7 when he admits, not everyone has this knowledge, even being weak in conscience. Puffed up knowledge invites a response to lord over another. But love here demands we come alongside them to pattern our lives after Jesus, as we see in Philippians chapter 2, to serve, perhaps even in what seems like extraordinary ways. And Paul again models that in verse 13. This might be of some challenge for us moderns, particularly in a culture that overemphasizes the individual and being independent. I've been reading John Goldingay's uh, latest commentary on Proverbs. Right, that's what pastors do. We read commentaries about books of the Bible. But he writes this about Proverbs chapter 2. He says, The image does not presuppose that people walk this road in the company of others, not on their own. They do not live a human life by, by each being an autonomous individual in order to realize themselves, but by walking with other people in a mutual sharing of needs, duties, and identities. Paul here is drawing on what the ancients understood about life. And Paul's invitation here to these Corinthian Jesus followers is a recovery of that sense of the company of others, that we live this together, that we're in this together, that we're mutually together and bound together in this life. And so we care for one another and serve one another. Understanding goes a long way in that effort, particularly for a church as diverse 
as the human family, which is what the church has always been meant to be. The third thing that matters, if love matters, is that freedom matters. A few years back, I had a colleague from New Hampshire, her car outfitted with the New Hampshire plates. If you have seen these, you, you know what they say already. They have the motto right there, live free or die. Live free or die. A great deal of folks live life in community under a version of these famed words, though not necessarily connected to their original meaning. They might say, my way or the highway, or I'll make decisions for myself, and that's what will stand, and you all get around it. You fall into line here. No consideration for the other. And so on the way to enacting their rights, their freedoms, they have little or no consideration toward what might be a benefit to their neighbor. It's all or nothing proposition. Of course, Paul here will have nothing of it. As verse 9 charges us, it says, But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That, of course, is together talk. It's talk that N.T. Wright offers uh, some helpful words here in observing this text when he writes, The language of rights needs to be held up to the light. And the light in which we can see clearly what it should and should mean is the light of love. The governing principle in the church needs to be love and understanding. These should govern how we deal with one another, with people. And rightly it should, for is this not the way that Jesus has dealt with us and continues to deal with us? The same Jesus who lovingly descends to us, who hears our voice even when it is most weak and feeble, who suspends what is rightly his so that we might be beneficiaries of God's grace? Has not Jesus done all these things? Paul's model for this community, for the church, both ancient in Corinth, but also here in our own day, is not built on abstract virtue. It's not some idea that has just suddenly popped into his head that he is manufacturer made up out of air, but rather the very real example of Jesus Christ. Christ's church is to reflect its architect, its builder, and its foundation, all in one. Well, you don't need me to tell you, in conclusion here, that we live in perilous times. You don't need me to tell you that. Though perhaps we don't live in times that are any more dangerous than they have been in other times in history. Life is dangerous. Bad things happen all the time. The world right now is embroiled in proxy wars, some places even in full-on war. Our national dialogue, of course, has us divided, siloed, and entrenched, probably or possibly more than ever. And strangely enough, social media, right? thing that's supposed to bring you together might actually be aiding in our division. We feel adrift. We feel vulnerable. Our community feels safer in some regards, while at the same time it feels increasingly less safe. This last Friday in Tukwila at Costco, who would have imagined that someone would be killed in the parking lot? I was there in the parking lot when the shots were fired and the perpetrator drove off. 
We live in unsafe times. But people have always lived in unsafe times. The challenge, of course, is how do we respond? How do we respond in the face of all these things? I was at a party yesterday in which a mom of a a young child shared how she drives into work. She pays extra to park in the parking garage and then scurries to her office and stays there until her shift ends and goes back to the parking garage and drives home because she's afraid. She's afraid of the dangers that exist in our communities and our culture today. And so we can isolate. We can insulate ourselves. We can hide behind walls that are higher and higher and moats that are deeper and deeper. We can protect ourselves with armored plating in matters of relationship before one another. We can come to each other with lack of trust and scaly and prickly words that hold people at a distance because we're afraid. But all of that would be to allow fear to dictate our lives. And again, Paul's invitation to us, an invitation from Christ, is to not define your life by fear, but to define it by love and what love would demand. A gentleman told me one time, when you face adversity in life, there's two things you can do if you take a lesson from a tree. You can either become super flexible, like the trees we see in the tropics. You can bend in the pressure, and so your flexibility increases. Or you can become like the great trees of the forest with roots that are deep. Grow deep into the soil so that the wind and the rain comes. It doesn't blow you over. One is flexible, remains planted. One is deeply rooted. Paul would offer here for us to come together, to be that community of love, for us to embody what Christ has embodied for us literally in the incarnation, in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, that we might be made whole in this life and forever. May it be for our generation this day and forevermore. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. And as we gather our hearts around and have pondered this text together, a text that presents to us food sacrificed to idols, but recognize it as only a symptom of a deeper deeper issue, one that we face in our own generation. The one that silos us. The one that makes us lack trust to live fearful lives. Because we believe that we're alone, and so we have to protect what is ours. But praise be to God. Praise be to the one who gives us life and demonstrates love for us. Lord, help us by the power of your Spirit to live lives that are defined by love that we might be knitted together all the more, that we might grow closer and support one another, that we might look on our sisters and brothers not in some sort of weird positioning game, but rather as true siblings, children of God, with love and affection for one another as we care for each other through a life and a journey together in this and a life to come. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.